and welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Talkless, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So Rifki, we were talking for so long about Ilhan Omar and APAC. And uh, the APAC conference is finally upon us this yeah. week. I've never actually been to an APAC conference. You've been, right? No, I don't think so. Really? Actually. All right. Maybe next year if someone wants to sponsor. <laughs> it's probably expensive, right? Very expensive. But it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So have you, have you seen anything coming out um, of APAC? I, I know somebody who um, was going to the conference and he was telling people that he was bringing a stack of Benjamins to give out to all <laughs> of the Congress people. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. Um, yeah. I mean, just been following Twitter. I'm actually recently... Uri, I've decided I'm, I'm really trying to stay off Twitter for a while. I don't oh, think it's okay. been good for me. Um, I don't think it's good for anyone, but I, I definitely think that it's hurting me on a really mm. personal level. So I'm really trying to stay away from that and trying to, to read the news less, trying to be a more soulful person. Okay, So it's good been about four days and it, it's been a struggle, but I'm really trying. So I've been reading about APAC a little bit, but definitely minimized. Any mm-hmm. any interesting tidbits that you've been hearing about? Um, well, so first of all, I'm this is obviously in the shadow of the whole Ilhan Omar controversy. But there's also a big election coming up in Israel, which we might talk about in the coming weeks. And I know that's a big part of the conference and what people are talking right. about. Um, and and I also al- the, the Golan Heights announcement last week. Right. America's recognizing um, Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Right. Um, I saw today there was actually a live um, press conference kind of thing um, with Trump and Netanyahu, with mm-hmm. a whole like line of people behind them, uh, there was Jared and Pence and David Friedman, the ambassador. Right. Um, and there was I watched most of it. There was there was a funny um, line that we're going to play, and then uh, we can talk about it. At this moment, the American embassy stands proudly in Jerusalem, the capital. The Jewish people have established, and they wanted the embassy for many many years for many decades and, frankly, through many presidents. And we got it done. Not only did we get it done, we also got it built at a slight cost saving, like about $1 billion cost saving. And I want to thank uh, Ambassador David Friedman for the job he's done, and Jason Greenblatt, and Jared, and everybody. They worked so hard together, so I want to thank you all. Thank you very much, Ambassador. You enjoying it? And you love Israel. Good. And America. I was waiting for him to say that. So it was a little bit hard to hear the back and forth, but basically Trump is being Trump. And I don't know exactly what he's trying to say, but he he's Makes, talking about the embassy. It's, it's crazy how the sentences do not hang together. Right. Well, I mean, I think he reads the script and then he goes off script right. in, in his own weird way. But so he he's talking about how they saved a billion dollars on the embassy. And then he turns to David Friedman, the ambassador, and he says, are you enjoying it? Like the embassy. And he says, yes, thank you. And he says, and do you love Israel? which is like a weird question to ask him. But his instinctual, immediate response was, and America. Yes. It comes out of his mouth immediately, and America. And Trump is sort of like Quick ca- on his feet. caught off guard. He's like, and America. Yeah, I was waiting for him to say that, which he clearly wasn't. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of like, I don't know why Trump asked him that. It's like a Such ridiculous... A, I'm thinking like, would you ask the ambassador to <laughs> no, any other But I'm not reading into it because like he's obviously no, just he's like a, he's a, a moron. Strange. But I just, it was funny that... Friedman responded that way, and that's clearly in the again right. the shadow of the Ilhan Omar dual right. loyalty thing. In response to the entire conversation, right, that's right, been especially with APAC happening now. So yeah. his immediate response: "Do you love Israel?" He says, "And America." Yeah, 
thought that was interesting. And I also just want to give a shout out to friend of the show, Bruce in Israel, um, who's been corresponding with us over the last few weeks about a, a whole slew of issues relating to the conflict and the upcoming elections. And it's been helpful for us to hear from somebody who's actually living in Israel and right. experiencing this firsthand, how some of the perspectives are a little bit different. So... Thanks, Bruce. Yeah, especially like a, I think it was it was yesterday night. There was a yeah, there was the rocket that landed in the Merkaz, and there's a lot of confusing stuff going on right now. Especially now with elections, people are arguing. You know, is Bibi you know trying to avoid war? Hamas is saying it was a mistake. You know, there's there's a lot of kind of confusing stuff going on that doesn't fit sort of a neat narrative. So right. it's it's a little bit it's a little bit scary to think about what's going on here. For sure. I'd like to now invite Prime Minister Netanyahu to say a few words. And Bibi and I have known each other for a long time. He's uh, another one who truly, truly loves Israel. I think I can say he also loves the United States. So this week's topic, many of you might have seen the New York Times published an article last week, actually on Purim, which was on Thursday last week. Michael Steinhardt, a leader in Jewish philanthropy, is accused of a pattern of sexual harassment. Steinhardt, who's a retired hedge fund founder, is a mega donor of major Jewish organizations like Birthright, Hillel, and some others, in addition to hospitals, museums, universities, and other hotspots for philanthropy. The article talks about six or seven women, actually, I think, because one of them, there's actually a lawsuit, who accuse him of sexual requests when they came to him seeking his financial support for their organizations. Though Steinhardt admits that he has a crude and immature sense of humor, and he apologized for that, he denies many of the specific actions and words that are attributed to him. And to be clear, none of the women accuse Steinhardt of actually touching them. But they said over and over that they felt, quote, pressured to endure demeaning sexual comments and requests out of fear that complaining could damage their organizations and derail their careers, end quote. Some organizations have talked about stepping back from their relationship with him, which is code for, you know, they're less likely to take his money. And I think Hillel has actually made that step. And of course, this article obviously comes during a climate where other important or powerful people, and generally men, are being called out for their behavior. And it's not always about sex or harassment. The past few years have brought a bunch of articles about the Sackler family, who are the founders and owners of the pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, another huge mega donor family. And the Sacklers have begun to face criticism for their alleged role in creating the opioid crisis in North America in the past few years. And the Sacklers, too, have begun getting pushback from the places where they donate. We're actually recording this on Monday evening. And as recently as seven minutes ago, Washington Post published an article entitled, As More Museums Say No to Sackler Donations, Family Trust Halts Its Giving. So, Uri, I'm a little curious as to what's going to happen in the next few days about this story. So though we've all been facing a public reckoning in how to deal or not deal with powerful men who are being brought down in the media recently, right? There's, should we still watch their comedy specials? Should we still watch their movies? You know, how do we engage with these people in in popular culture? There's a particular kind of struggle when it comes to philanthropy and the money that it comes with. Uri, I personally work for a nonprofit, and this particular struggle is really rampant across the nonprofit world. It's something that hospitals, museums, really all of us, we, we all have to grapple with this. We all have to raise money, and we have to take money from donors to do our work. And we often sort of have to ask ourselves, are there limits to who we take from? And if there are, what are those limits? But beyond that, I think there are a few other things that I want to talk about, Uri. First of all, how should nonprofits deal with taking money from slimy donors? And is there a difference in how slimy and maybe the type of slime? And also, what's the deal with Steinhardt specifically? Should we be more uncomfortable about this story, less uncomfortable? Does it matter if we're a Jewish organization or even a religious organization as opposed to, say, a museum or a hospital? What do you think, Uri? Well, 
I think, uh, as usual, it's a bit complicated. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Um, honestly, th- because I don't work, I-, I don't work for a nonprofit, but I've worked with a lot of nonprofits. To be honest, I actually once interviewed Michael Steinhardt. And I, I, to be really honest, I experienced this firsthand. He wasn't talking to me, I don't think. I actually was curious to go back and look at the footage of that interview. Um, but he, there was a woman there who was conducting the interview and he was speaking exactly like it was described. He wasn't, it didn't sound like he was specifically propositioning her, mm-hmm. um, but he was just sp- speaking just very crassly and, and joke. It was clear that he was joking, right. but I was very disturbed by it right. and thrown off. I'm like, I was just wondering, like, is this how he talks to everyone? Like, that's so weird. Turns out, yes. <laughs> um, but taking a step back from Steinhardt, I am a capitalist and I believe in the free market. But that being said, my perspective as of now on the world is like when you're dealing with billionaires, I'm sure there are plenty of exceptions. And I'm not saying that people who are mega rich are automatically slimy uh, or shady people. But I just feel like you can't accrue that amount of wealth without being somewhat either ruthless or shady in some way or like entering into an area of business that maybe other people are hesitant for so meaning like there's so many examples of things that are totally legal as far as we can tell but are still questionable like you know sheldon adelson made his money with casinos plenty of people you know people's lives have been ruined by the opioid crisis plenty of people's lives have been ruined from gambling addiction and, right. and you know well one of the one of the names that people bring up sometimes in this story even though it's it's kind of almost like whispered is Marcos Katz mm-hmm. who was is one of the fun, huge names funding YU if you go to yutoro.org you know their name is right there they're on the wall at tons of Jewish organizations Marcos and his, his wife Adina who from what I understand was a wonderful person he passed away a few years ago real like Balcha said love to give very charitable but he was an arms dealer in I think mm-hmm. Latin America uh, and that's pretty confusing right and, and confusing to us especially because it's Torah organizations so I think that that's that's a right. difficult struggle I think the bottom line we can get into some of the specifics but honestly I think if this is the model that nonprofits are going to choose to pursue which is to go to find the mega rich people who want to be philanthropic and get donations from them if you're there's no limit to meaning you're going to lose all your money if you are strict about you can't be a rotten person and you can't have made your money in unsavory ways like yeah even it comes to mind another example george soros um there was a big article i think maybe in new york times magazine a few months ago about how he made his fortune and yes it was same with steinhardt in the sense that it was like financial it was like wall street kind of stuff but soros basically like i don't remember all the details but he it was involved currents foreign currencies and he basically made these massive bets against certain like small countries and things like that, where there are always winners and losers in these in these financial gambles and bets. And so there are plenty of people who see Soros as like complicated, just in the way that many uh, investors and, and right. funds are, in the sense of like, if you're, you're betting against or betting for one thing, it means you're betting against right. something else and somebody's losing in some Even countries. Even though I imagine as a capitalist, or you, you, you're That's fine That's why I, I prefaced like by yeah. saying, yes, I'm a capitalist, but on the other hand, I don't know, everything... It muddies it a little In moderation, and I'm just saying, it's not something that I personally would want to be involved in on that level. I'm not interested in being a billionaire. But, you know, you're dealing... So the nonprofits themselves, it's a funny dynamic because the nonprofits are, let's 
give them benefit of the doubt are like the best people in society who are choosing to dedicate their lives to really idealistic causes, whether it's a hospital or a place of learning or a medical school or whatever. And But they're taking money from the people who made the exact opposite decisions in life, that they want to make the most money possible. Right. And now those two things are joining forces it's like an interesting combination. Right. That's a good point that often the people who work or run nonprofits are motivated more by idealism than by anything else. And yet, because they are so dependent on money from, from money people, right, from the rich they people who are, yeah, those, exactly. that world. Um, and one of the an analogy I was talking to friend and, and friend of the show, of course, uh, Ariel, who she had like a pithy phrase that I like where she basically talked about the difference between dirty people and dirty money, where dirty people are people maybe like Steinhardt who are slime me and maybe kind of gross and maybe they're jerks and maybe they're bores and maybe they're, they're not people that we you know want to be best friends with but they're different than someone who got their money in dirty ways right who specifically this money came from either something illegal like tax evasion uh, money laundering something like that or even from maybe dealing arms right, right. where illegal the, the is money, an extreme right, case exactly. but we're i think and maybe more clear cut more clear cut yeah we're right. talking more i think more about things that are legal but that are very unsavory yeah. so so let's talk about michael Steinhardt specifically Uri, mm -hmm. because i think that this is sort of confusing to me because i've been reading a lot about it and i've been talking to people a lot about it and i actually am finding and tell me if you disagree but I'm finding that people are not so bothered by the story in kind of an interesting way. And I've heard a bunch of different reasons for that. So, so let's just go through some of them, right? People are saying he's just kind of gross, right? Kind of the dirty money versus right. dirty person kind of thing. He's just kind of gross. But like, that doesn't mean that we as a nonprofit shouldn't take his money. Right. It doesn't mean the and hospital everybody knew should that already about Yeah, him. yeah, yeah. That's definitely true. Secret. Yeah. Open secret makes it sound like it's like a hard. It wasn't even a secret. It wasn't even a secret. It was just open. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then another friend of mine kind of pointed out of like, Listen, like, okay, so the big story here is that there's an old rich guy who's sexist. Like, he's an old rich guy. They're all sexist. Like, why are we making that to be a story? You know, many of us, if would they make a story in the New York Times about, like, our great uncles? Yeah, they're old rich guys. They're sexist. Another sort of possible idea is maybe people are just kind of over it. Like not maybe over it's too strong a word, but there's been so much Me Too stuff. And this is relatively not so bad. You know, right, he, didn't he didn't touch, touch anyone. Right. He didn't even not touch her he didn't masturbate in front of anyone like he said gross things to women and made them uncomfortable is that really worthy of like a breaking news story I i'm not sure like it's a little bit more complicated but at the same time he does fit into this story this sort of larger dynamic of power playing itself out powerful men less powerful women women feeling like not only disillusioned but it changing the trajectory of their careers it's a hindrance for them so i i do think that there there's maybe some value there but it does feel like this story is just kind of getting less press and of course just to add this story came out on thursday which was purim which was a time in our community where a lot of people were not really Busy into the news, right? Um, and also the next day, the Mueller report came out, which right. maybe we'll talk about at some point. But there's a lot of other stuff going on that this almost kind of like lost power. Right. I mean, yes, again, the fact that he is not accused of touching anyone, it doesn't excuse what he is accused of. But I was wondering, first of all, like, okay, so what if he just had a reputation of just being a huge jerk and he would just yell at people and make them feel terrible about themselves, but not sexual related? Like, right. would that even be article right. worthy? Did you read about the, the Amy Klobuchar thing? 
No. Amy Klobuchar. Oh, yes, yes. She's one of the, she's one of the Democrats the running Times for president, right? And, it, yeah. Yeah. So this was in a couple different, you know, journalistic outlets, including the New York Times, where they basically, she seems to have an anger or an right. anger management problem. And she berates her staff and she publicly humiliates people. And part of the, the question is, is this the temperament of someone we want? Part of the question is, you know, how much of this is just sexism and it wouldn't be a story for a man, you know, all those things. Right. But that is not sexual. There's right. definitely. That's, so that's interesting power that that was there. newsworthy. That's yeah. somebody who who's running for office right. so it's so a little maybe bit that's different why it's but this yeah. is you know an old he's retired he right. what he's a very wealthy guy he had a lot of power he runs a he ran a powerful hedge fund yeah. and he's still very important in that he gives you know hundreds of millions of dollars but is this a story well, right. is a an, little bit an, more another, muddled another interesting way to look at it that i was thinking about is on the one hand you have the variable of where the money is coming from and is a dirty money or dirty person on the other hand you have where is the money going to? And does it make a difference what type of institution it's going to? So for example, Robert Kraft, um, right. you know, I think his money, let's just call it clean money. And I don't think he's a bad person. No one right. is saying that, but he had the prostitution thing, whatever right. that is or turns out to be. And I have no reason to think that he's a bad person. I, everything I've heard, he's an amazing person and everybody loves him, but he has this prostitution scandal now. Right. And so there were pictures of him hanging up at, YU. I don't even think he's ever even give, given money to YU. I'm not sure, but he mm-hmm. spoke at the YU graduation right, a few years ago, that. and there were some posters of him. And after this came out, they took the posters down. Did they really? Because it's YU and it's a yeshiva, and so specifically the values I think of a yeshiva is very problematic to have somebody who has that kind of scandal. You know what? Can I, can I just say maybe mm-hmm. this is me being cynical? I wonder if they would have taken it down if, if he, he had was given a donor. Money. Right? Yeah. Okay. Like someone. Fair like, I think of someone like Marcos Katz, who again might be a huge mention and for, for all intents and purposes everyone says he's a great guy he was an arms dealer when right. you compare well, so an arms a, dealer so right. to someone who visited a prostitution you know like, uh, yeah it just feels so what i'm saying right so what's interesting is like so let's say so there you have the immoral thing matched up with like a yeshiva or a place of high morality so mm-hmm. what if it's like with the sacklers side point i think the whole sackler thing is blown out of proportion meaning like i don't think it's fair to blame the family that started the pharmaceutical company that came up with the the major prescription opioid, OxyContin, and blame them for the opioid crisis as opposed to the FDA or the doctors that prescribe the medication. I'm not saying they're off the hook, but to say that that's a separate point but right. but but speci- we could get into that yeah but they what's interesting is they give to a lot of things like the guggenheim and museums and all th- right. but, but also hospitals so in that case is it specifically problematic for let's say a hospital or a medical school to take donations from a family that is problematic in terms of health making people unhealthy or, or right. endangering people's lives I think to a certain extent, and maybe this is me being cynical, but I think it really comes down to the press that the organization gets. Because I think about, let's say I have an organization. The Sackler family comes to me and says, we want to give you a $50 million gift to endow, you know, XYZ, whatever. And I say to them, like, look, that's amazing. And we want your money. But you guys have been engaged in some shady practices. And we don't feel comfortable putting your name on our wall just because of this whole thing. But we really want your money. And we think it could do really great things. And we think this is this is the what you can fund. And this is what you can create. And all these things. Look at what you can say you can cure cancer whatever whatever it is so we're gonna take your money and we're gonna say it was given anonymously how would you feel Mm -hmm. about that right 
that to me feels a little bit different than a plaque on the wall, right? Or, or right. an entire wing with the name splattered everywhere, right. right? Like, I feel like maybe there's a happy balance, but I would imagine that the Sackler Foundation and the Sackler family wouldn't be as comfortable well, with that's that. That's very interesting because I was about to, the, the next thing that I wanted to bring up was why do we think these individuals or families make these kind of donations how do we look at that so i don't want to be cynical about it if i don't have to be so i want to assume that they're good people and they have been blessed with tremendous wealth and they want to give back right i think that's the obvious reason and i'm sure no matter how cynical we want to be i'm sure for most people that is a really big part of it for sure if there are other motivations you know that's real yeah in addition to that I think some of the more cynical perspectives on it might be, I mean, like, first of all, there are tax benefits to these kind of donations. Um, And obviously also like notoriety of like, wow, everyone, they sees their name. They look at that family. They're amazing people. I think another thing that is interesting to think about is people who made their money specifically in uncomfortable or unsavory ways trying to assuage their guilt Uh somehow i'm not saying that's necessarily what it is but that's like possible so it's like specifically let's say with the sacklers if they're guilt if they feel guilty like oh no we we kind of may have caused a lot of people to get sick or die so let's give to hospitals so that we can balance that out i don't know i mean it also happens to be that the, the family they're all doctors and they own a pharmaceutical company so that's their world and that's what they know um, but so, they, they're also very much involved in museums and in, a lot of other know. things also yeah for sure but I, those are just some of the things that I was thinking about wondering I, I will say again though at the end of the day we can have this conversation and nonprofits and the Guggenheim and whatever can say we're not taking money from from this from the Sacklers because now they're in the news and whatever but I, I think it's a little bit hypocritical because I think most of these mega donors can be painted in that kind of negative light in one way or another yeah, I mean, that's pretty sad, but I think you're right. And to a certain extent, I really do think that at the end of the day, for many of these nonprofits, and I really have sympathy for these nonprofits. Again, I, I work for a nonprofit. Because they're we doing are amazing work. Yeah, like A, they really want to use this money to do really good work. And B, I really think it's fair that at the end of the day, and I really think this is where they're coming from, it's about whether it will hurt their brand, right? Am mm-hmm. I going to take money from Steinhardt at this point? No, because it's going to look bad because people are then going to well, look negatively at us. Well, that's what I was saying Sackler. Right. Because Sackler's in the news now, right. all these galleries are saying right. we're not exactly. going to take. But the names and, that are not in the news, they're still taking, right. even though and, they might be worse than and Sackler. And we've, we've known about Sackler for a while, right? There, the, there was a, that Bombshell New York article a few years ago where, you know, ob- okay, so when I say Bombshell, maybe a specific world Bombshell, but, you know, it was a bombshell in the New York hospitals. And there was a bombshell mm-hmm. in the New York museums. They knew and they kept taking the money. But now that the brand is is tainted, the right. name is has this uh, asterisk next to it. Now these these organizations are scared that it's going to hurt them and it's going to hurt other people are going to protest. Right? Did you see what happened with the Guggenheim a few months ago? Uh, people basically took over the Guggenheim. Right. Well, I listened to the da- the New York Times Daily podcast. Oh, right, podcast. right. I they, forgot that was in. They were talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it really hurt the Guggenheim name when they're they're splashed all over the newspapers as there's a protest against people who are responsible for the opioid epidemic and they're being protested in the Guggenheim. Right. I, I think it makes the Guggenheim look really bad. So it makes sense that a few months later, the Guggenheim is saying, we're not comfortable. We're right. not going to so, take that's the like donation a, anymore. Again, a l- little bit of a cynical take on it that we're both kind of agreeing on, which is that 
when it's not publicly or widespreadly known that this name or this family, this individual is problematic, so they take the money and they obviously rationalize it by saying we're doing really good work. So you know we we're not at fault. They they may have done something wrong, but we're just taking their money and doing really good things with it. So that's okay. Once the name or the person. Is in the news and is going to hurt the nonprofit's brand by being associated with them. That's when they cut it off, even though they knew all along right. why that they were problematic. So that's like a little bit, I don't know. <laughs> right, uh, and I, Uri, I know that I can be sometimes a little bit naive, and I can be sometimes a little idealistic, and you know, I know that I often fall into into that box and that role in our show. But when the more I was thinking about this, the more I kind of sort of said to myself, like, look, you know, I really understand. I really get where they're coming from, all these things. And then I basically stopped in my tracks and I said, wait a second, hold on one second. We, especially organizations, you know, and nonprofits like YU or, or the organization that I work for, which is also a Torah organization, right? Jewish and religious organizations what we say over and over is that we, as, as religious people, as religious Jews, is that our responsibility is to be a light onto the nations. It is our responsibility to constantly create this Kiddush Hashem, right, which is sort of sanctification of God's name. People should be looking at us. People should be looking at our institutions, at our personas, and saying, wow, that's amazing. I really see a godliness in the world that is coming through these people. And that doesn't happen that often. That that doesn't happen a lot. And it, it makes me pretty sad. And when I think about this, when I think about organizations and nonprofits and schools and all these things sort of justifying. And even if the justification is acceptable, which I I kind of understand why it would be, when I still look at these things, I still think like, don't we kind of have a responsibility to try a little bit harder to, to, to be doing a little bit better than what we think is kind of the bare necessity for us to say to ourselves or to say to the world, like, look, it's understandable. Like we're doing good things. Like, I feel like that's just not enough. Like, I feel like we have a special responsibility to ourselves, to the world to say, like, we are going to try a little bit harder. And, and so I know it's a little bit naive. I know I was actually described, I was talking to a friend of mine about this and I was like, I feel like I sound like I'm like kind of straight out of seminary. Like I'm like 19 and I'm like, no, but like, but I still think it's true. Like I think we have a responsibility to do a little bit better. And so, you know, why you, if you're listening, uh, I think we should talk, you know, every organization. I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a fair point, but I think to put it into perspective, um, you're saying Jews should set an example. I think I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it's well known that the Jewish community is extremely overrepresented when it comes to like nonprofits per capita. I would, you know, I think we're pretty high. But what if that money's okay? All and, and and on the other end, also the philanthropy is very very high in the Jewish community. So it's like, yeah, people make their money sometimes in uh, shady or unsavory ways, and that's not. Okay, I mean, we, that's t- not we talk great. about so is white collar crimes. But then, like, but then, those, but then, but then those people, those people are giving a lot of their money away, as opposed to other super rich people who make their money in shady ways and then just keep it all. You know, so what's worse? I don't. I'm just saying what your what your yeah. point is is well is well taken and, and and true. But the fact that the all these nonprofits exist and the fact that all these donors and philanthropists exist is is on some level, I think, still a positive thing. I hear you. I hear you. I I would hope that we could continue to exist as these organizations with getting money from a little bit less unsavory people. Less unsavory. More savory? I was like, (laughs) more savory organizations. Okay, we'll do it. Um, But but it's hard to think about, and there are really no easy answers. Actually, Uri, it would have been cool if we could have gotten like 
fundraisers or CEOs, maybe not CEOs, but whatever, heads of nonprofit organizations to come on the show. But the truth is that I think that any, they won't be able to talk about it. Yeah, honestly. any any fundraiser who's going to say, "Look, like we have a threshold for how bad they're allowed to right. be," they're going to get pillarized. It could still right? like be if, interesting to hear what they have to say. Yeah. And uh, if any uh, heads of nonprofits <laughs> want to come join us, give us or give us feedback or send us an email, we'd yeah. be happy to hear it and read it on the air. Thank you all so, so much for listening. As always, please, please, please send us emails, talkingtachaspodcast at gmail.com and join the conversation on our Facebook page. And don't forget, please subscribe. Please rate us five stars. Please write us reviews. Do it all. All those things that you hear about on every single podcast. Do that for us too. Thanks as always to Drive-In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. Thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade, the other official band of Talking Tachlis. And if any of our listeners are at APAC, um, let us know how it is. Let us know if anything interesting is happening there, um, controversial, anything like that. We'd love to hear it. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.